welcome to the SL Advisors podcast. Nothing we say should be construed as a sale of securities, which can only be made through the relevant prospectus. I'm Simon Leck, and I'm joined by my partner, Henry Hoffman. We invest in energy infrastructure. So let's chat about what's new in energy over the past week. And a lot of what we um, talk about, Henry and I, uh, is generated by the calls that we have with clients and prospects on the sector. And there's been uh, a regular focus on return on capital by investors. And that's been a theme that's, uh, that's been recurring really over the last several months. And Henry, why don't you give us a little bit of a perspective in terms of how we look at that and what people are saying? There's been increasing amount of focus on this return on capital or return on uh, invested capital or return on incremental invested capital. And that focus comes in the midstream is spending a lot on CapEx. They may have hit their peak year in 2018 and it's coming down slightly, but it's still an enormous amount. It's almost $50 billion a year. Been in new CapEx projects. And so when you're when you're spending so much on new projects, it's very important to know what is incremental return on capital and how are you calculating your weighted average cost of capital in order to make those decisions. It's a, it's a big increasing focus uh, in the midstream and applies directly to when people are asking the question of how disciplined are these management teams at allocating capital. And it's really got to where management teams will celebrate a new project and as investors, we don't always feel the same way. What is that expression you said? You give a pipeline guy a dollar? Yeah, they say in the upstream, you give an oil man a dollar, he's going to drill a well. And when the midstream, it's you give a pipeline or a dollar, he's going to build a pipe. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And then sometimes you see projects announced and it's not even that good for the stock. So what's the issue here with calculating return of capital? How should people be doing it? And how are they sometimes not doing it correctly? The major issue we see is... Management teams will present a measure called DCF or distributable cash flow. And this measure is essentially EBITDA minus the interest, minus taxes paid, and minus something they classify as maintenance capex, which is somewhat arbitrary, but they can, you know, kind of pick and choose what is maintenance. Maintenance is supposed to be something that kind of maintains the existing pipeline, this repairs on your compression stations or whatnot, and then growth capex, which is something separate. And DCF does not include the growth capex. And often management teams will say, look, you need to value us on this distributable cash flow metric, which is a similar metric to the adjusted funds from operations of REITs. So it gets, it gets you a measure of cash flow. And so they'll say, look, this is how we're calculating our cost of equity, and this is what you should look at. But then when they go to a new project, they say, we're going to build a new project based on EBITDA, a multiple of EBITDA. And a multiple of EBITDA, EBITDA is a different metric you're not accounting for. Interest, taxes, and interest rates are low, and taxes is negligible for most of these companies. But you're not accounting for the DNA. And so when you have large CapEx and you're not attributing something to DNA, you can really get out of whack on what you're doing on your investments. DNA depreciation and amortization. Yeah, the depreciation. And amortization applies if you're buying something. Depreciation makes a huge difference in this business because you could buy an asset, machine depreciate three years, or it depreciates, a pipeline say depreciates over 30 years or 40 years. And that makes an enormous difference. If you're paying a five to seven times multiple that these mid-strength firms invest in for an asset and you have to replace it in three years, you're just destroying value. And that should be incredibly obvious. And so you can see how using a metric for investors or how you're calculating your cost of equity that ignores or frames it in this kind of maintenance capex, which can be calculated anything and ignores interest and, and taxes and DNA as well, or includes the interest and taxes 
uh, and then comparing that to a multiple where you're building that ignores a lot of these things, particularly DNA, uh, sh shouldn't be done. You should be making that comparison between the two. And so we find it somewhat revealing in companies when you'll see something where they're saying, okay, we're doing a project, say, in a company that's not really midstream-like, whether it's compression assets or enhanced oil recovery that has a pretty steep drop-off, and you're using an EBITDA multiple. And that seems incredibly silly to us because appreciation is real. You know, in this case, it's depletion in an EOR business. I mean, that's a very real, real cost. And to use a multiple that ignores that is quite disconcerting. Yeah, I know you've talked about Kinder Morgan, right? And how they'll use that EBITDA measure for their enhanced oil recovery business. Just describe how wrong that is. Yeah, exactly. So if you're investing in an EBITDA multiple for enhanced oil recovery, so you're bringing oil out of the ground and you're ignoring completion, right? And in your DCF, you're not making maintenance CapEx to say, okay, you know, what's the amount of CapEx I need to maintain production at current levels, to maintain this essentially cash flow stream, which is what investors care about. Instead, you're doing is I'm investing in an EBITDA multiple and, you know, I'm ignoring that completion. So they have a pretty steep decline, which is in the range of, you know, two to, two to three years. And you're investing at multiples. You have to be invested at a multiple of one times then to make money. And so if you go and look and say, oh, this business doesn't garner the same multiple as, say, a long-haul pipeline asset, well, of course it should because the cash flows, without new investment, the cash flows aren't there. An analogy we'd like to use for real estate investors is you buy an apartment building and you rent out the apartments. There's a cash flow stream. Or you buy an apartment building and you sell them off one by one as condos. In the EOR business, you're selling the condo, calling that cash flow and trying to compare that to the same as um, the rent income you're getting from an apartment in a different side of your business. And that gets concerning from investors' perspective when management is making decisions uh, with that kind of analysis, because eventually you sell all the condos, you're just left with a liability in you know, maintaining the, the management of the building, and you no longer bring any cash flows. You have to go out and buy a new building. And so you can get into a lot of problems using the wrong metrics for your underwriting process of new projects. And so I think one of the things that a lot of people have found frustrating is just the persistent weakness in the sector. I mean, here we are in uh, late June 2019, coming up on the, almost the five-year anniversary, August 29, 2014, of when the sector peaked. And I think that um, for a lot of investors, and particularly people who are not invested but looking at the sector, it's this issue of projects calculating the return on capital correctly, calculating the cost of capital correctly. I think a lot of investors feel that that math hasn't been done the right way, that companies have been too optimistic about returns and perhaps even uh, incorrect in terms of their cost of capital. But I think there's uh, some positive signs. And you did some uh, great work on free cash flow. And, you know, these pipeline companies use the sort of cash flow, which is a non-gap term. It's not that widely used outside of midstream energy infrastructure. But free cash flow is something that people look at across the equity markets. And just walk us through the free cash flow analysis you did. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the coming pipeline cash gusher, because we think it's such a positive story. But just walk us through, Henry, what you think's driving that. Yeah, so what we did to kind of get to, you know, what's going to bring investors back to the sector. And as you said, it was the model really changed from, you know, five, six years ago, where this was a space, a price on dividend yield, the cost of equity was low cost of debt's low, you know, when you have cost of debt around 4% and your cost of equity is around 5 or 6%, then a lot of projects make sense. You don't really even need to do the math to, you know, to go in and do these projects and have a lot of growth. And so people were overextended. They're taking on a lot of leverage because it was cheap. 
lenders were giving it to them without many conditions. And, and then you had this GPLP structure, which really incentivized these pay higher and higher distributions and kind of inflate this DCF metric in order to flow money from the LPs to the GPs. Now you have a simplified structure and you want to attract generalists back to the sector, right? You've burned your old high net worth uh, investor, retiree. They're likely not coming back to the space. They were promised tax deferred distributions and they got those distributions cut and they got a tax bill, right? So management's failed them pretty horribly. So now you need to attract generalists to the sector. And the way to do that, generalists are going to focus on free cash flow. And free cash flow is a very simple measure. It's you know your cash flows from operations minus your capital expenditure. So in this way, you can really take the, take the DCF, which already adjusts out maintenance capex, and then just take out the growth capex as well. And so we went through all the 10Ks, looking at what projects they've FID that they're looking forward to, you know what they're kind of guiding for in uh, years past the next year, and kind of put an estimate of where this growth capex will be for free cash flow. And that's where that analysis shows as CapEx is coming down, cash flows are ramping up as other projects drop online, and this sector will start to generate a lot of key cash flow versus it's had negative free cash flow the past few years. So you had figured out a, about a billion dollars in free cash flow from last year, but what, how does it look over the next two or three years now? Yeah, it's a billion dollars and it's going to ramp up to, you know, in 2020 to 25 billion or so, 2021, we expect 45 billion. So you're really going to ramp up from no cash flow. People are concerned about, you know, what is this return on investment stuff to once you start showing a lot of free cash flow, then generals get excited about that because free cash flow is the cash that you can return to investors. And cash flows are growing in the sector. You know, they're growing about 10% annually, but that CapEx is coming down. So the two of them combined is going to lead to a lot of free cash flow. The math we're using, it's in the midstream where you have qualified midstream earnings, which is really a pipeline sector. It's ramping up to 45 billion. We do not adjust for debt. And the reason we didn't do that was we we look at it very conservatively. Most of the time, management is going to raise their CapEx. Often you don't roll into the new year and then you see the CapEx budget come down, or we haven't so far. So we're holding the absolute debt level constant in this analysis. And so that's going to even show a larger story. So you're going from no free cash flow to you know, this, this kind of seven, eight percent free cash flow yield, holding absolute debt levels. Constant. So if you were to incorporate, okay, what's, what's the level of debt you could take out and maintain a constant leverage ratio uh, or a, a debt to EBITDA? And the way you do that math quickly would be, you'd say, okay, you have $100 in EBITDA roughly, you're growing at 10% annually, therefore you have $110 of EBITDA. Originally, you'd have, say, four times that, $400 in debt to that $100 in EBITDA. Now you got $110, so your leverage would drop roughly 10% to a little over a little over 3.6, where the math works there. But if you looked at that and said, okay, well, we're going to actually keep the leverage ratio at four times, four times a comfortable ratio, then you'd have on that additional $10, you're looking at, okay, companies in the space trade at roughly 10 times EV to EBITDA multiples. Four turns of that is the debt multiple, six turns is equity. That 10% that you're getting on there is you know, 0.4. Four, six, two thirds. So you're having, you know, six, six point seven percent, six point six seven percent additional cash flow on your equity you could pull out, and that so that changes. You have almost another seven percent. So the cash you could return to investors as it comes down holding debt constant is your, you know, free cash flow yield to say at seven percent plus another seven percent. Yeah. So what you did was you actually assumed that leverage would become more conservative, which yes, if they in just our analysis the same, then it, 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 in fact they'd be even more cash flow. 
Yeah, I thought it was really very powerful. I mean, I thought that was a great work. And, and like I said, we talked about it in one of our recent blog posts, and we got a lot of great feedback on that. So that's the really positive thing about the sector is as much as it's been maligned and investors have been frustrated and distributions have been cut, cash flows going up, distributions are going up, and you've got this really enormous jump in free cash flow over the, over the next few years. Let's touch on uh, a different topic, something we've written about on Sunday. And you had a great insight. We were chatting about the protesters against uh, natural gas pipelines or pipelines generally, and especially in the Northeast, where there's been a lot of successful protests which have impeded the construction of pipelines that, will, that would bring new natural gas to the region, particularly to New York, New York State. Let's just talk a little bit about that insight there in terms of how we feel about the protesters. Yeah. So this was, I think we were, we were joking around and every time a pipeline gets announced where we don't own the company, it's a, it's a competitor's pipeline. We don't have exposure to it. We say, we feel like going out and protesting the pipeline because <laughs> it's, it's so it, it, it new pipeline. If you have a pipeline from point A to point B, the last thing you want is another pipeline from point A to point B because it just crushes your economics. And some of the companies do it themselves. They kind of cannibalize their own business. So we looked at this and we said, look, the protesters are aligned to some degree with pipeline investors. If you owned all the pipelines in North America or in the US, what better thing would you want than for no pipeline to ever be built again? And when you look at it in, in those terms, then you would know every time your contracts roll off, then you're going to renew them at higher rates, you know, much higher rates. You're going to renew them at the rates of the next alternative, which would be barge for oil. Or, or train for oil, but you could have, but it would be trucks, you know, compressed natural gas. There's no other way to really move it absent flare off you need it. But if you're trying to get natural gas, your next alternative is incredibly expensive. Pipelines are regulated, a lot of them are negotiated rates. And FERC exists, you know, not to give pipelines necessarily an economic rate of return. That's part of it, but they exist, you know, primarily to prevent pipelines from gouging their customers. Because a utility to keep the lights on, you know, an LDC needs that uh, gas. So they, they want to sign that 20 year. They want to match the duration of the life of their plant to make sure that they have uh, the natural gas coming in, the shippers can match it. So, you know, you have a regulatory body that exists there to prevent this kind of price gouging. And one of the best things you can have is, you know, limited capacity in the pipelines um, sector, you know, widens out basis differentials. It's just a great place to be. You're not worried about tariff cliffs. You're looking forward to them. And it's getting harder and harder to build pipelines. You see it already in the, in the Northeast. You know, New York, where I live, it's incredibly hard. Constitution still trying. Northeast supply enhancement is a recent one in the news. Um, uh, both, I think, are probably less likely to happen. Well, the Constitution, I think, is a very, very long shot. But they're blocking these pipelines, which says if you have pipe in the ground, that's going to be worth a lot more in five years. The thing I found uh, really kind of funny was that if these pipeline companies conspired to agree not to build new pipelines if they agreed not to add capacity they, they you know they, that would be antitrust there'd be issues with that and yet the protesters are in effect doing that job for them if only they'll go along with that and listen to that and so we've really come around we now like pipeline protesters because they're trying to stop pipeline companies from investing in new pipelines and as investors who want to see more free cash flow and more discipline around spending, we've decided that we we are aligned with the environmental extremists, some of the nuts who are out there opposing any kind of fossil fuel. Uh, Once, we've decided yeah. that they're our friends now. 
<laughs> yeah, once once you've kind of reached the point where people have thrown up their hands. And this is when we were we were talking to um, Enbridge's management recently. And they said, look, you're, we're just not trying to build you know, long-haul pipelines in Canada anymore. That was amazing when they it's said amazing. They... And you think, well, thank God, right? If everyone else, because what you do not want is someone to start on a project, you know, like Mountain Valley or Atlantic Coast, and you just get delay after delay and and cost overruns. I mean, massive cost overruns. And so, and this is what you know the, the protests are doing, and they're holding up in the, the courts. And of course, they hit the the pipeline. It's like really the Achilles heel of the industry because that's across there's so many different jurisdictions, and so you can really you know beat them to death in the court systems. But once you stop trying, you know, once you're not susceptible to those cost overruns and delays, which companies are starting to accept, you know, they're coming around to this of let's just not try to build these pipelines in Canada. Let's not try not to put these pipelines through the Northeast anymore. Point them towards the Gulf Coast if you can get them there and uh, send it to the world market. Yeah. So if there's a scarcity of pipelines, the pipelines you already own are worth a bit more. And so, so we like that. So protesters, get to it, man. Get out there. Keep protesting. Drive to the protests by all means and, Absol- uh, yeah. and help us. Absolutely. And if you inverse it, imagine if you had government policy that said, okay, basically every pipeline is going to get Im- imminent domain and, uh, and the government will loan you the money to build it at 0%. Right? And so you would say, oh, that environment, you'd be building pipelines everywhere. Wouldn't that be a great environment? Well, that's a terrible environment for a pipeline owner because now you know, you'd have everyone building it for zero cost of capital and it would be incredibly easy. So it's, uh, it's not a bad thing that these, these pipelines, it, pipelines are going to be worth a lot more in five years from now, um, the way things are going. I like that. Well, on that positive note, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. 